There were two friends uh, who worked together. They'd been friends for a very long time. And uh, one of the friends had decided that he wanted to lose some weight. He kind of packed on a few pounds and so he decided he was going to go on a bit of a fitness routine and lose some weight. But one day he showed up to work with a big box of donuts. And so his friend said to him, what's the deal? I thought you were still trying to lose weight. Like, what, what's the deal with the big bag of donuts? And he said, well, here's the thing. I woke up this morning and I felt like I wanted to have some donuts, but I wasn't sure if it was the right thing to do or not. And so I prayed and I said, God, if it's okay for me to have some donuts, then there will be a space out the front of Krispy Kreme Donuts, you know, the one that's on the way to work. There'll be a space right out the front, and then I'll know that you've said it's okay and you've answered my prayer and it's all right for me to have some donuts. So I thought this is the way it's going to work. If I drive past and there's an empty space there, God said yes, and so I can get these donuts. And so sure enough, on the eighth time around the block, there was a big space out the front, and God answered my prayer. We're wrapping up our series today, which is called Interrupted. For the last four weeks, we've been looking at some different characters throughout Scripture. Uh, Daniel, Esther, last week a snapshot from Jesus, and this week Peter, to be able to see what we can learn about dealing with the interruptions that come our way in our lives by looking at some people who had their lives interrupted in some fairly significant ways. And so, as always, inside of Caring Connection, you have your teaching notes, and so if it's helpful to jot some things down as we go through the message, then please feel free to do that. A bit of background to the passage that we're looking at today. We're in the book of Acts, uh, and so Acts is this beautiful book that tells the story of the emergence of the early church. In the days after Jesus' death and resurrection, as people start to discover the truth about what Jesus has done and the implications of that, the church explodes. All of these people, thousands and thousands of people, discover all these amazing things that Jesus has done and put their trust in Jesus and then start to gather together to be able to learn together and pray together and to seek God together and to be able to impact the communities in which they lived together. And one of the key people who was a part of the early church was this guy named Peter. He was one of Jesus' closest friends, one of the guys who spent a fair amount of time with Jesus, and one of the people who Jesus had said, you're one of the ones who's going to help this thing called the church to really take off. And so you can imagine for Peter, he was just really passionate about people being able to discover Jesus, to be able to understand all the prophecies that Jesus had fulfilled, the way in which Jesus was the one who'd come to put everything right in our relationship with God, and the one who shows us how to live lives uh, the way that we were created to live. And so I'm sure that that's what he wanted to focus on, was just get out there, tell people about Jesus, help them to gather around together in communities, and to be able to journey together. But as all of this is happening, there's this ongoing persecution that's happening for the early church. The Jewish leaders, who were the ones who had had Jesus killed, uh, were trying to stamp out this revolution. They were really, really frustrated about these people who were saying that the Jewish way of life, and in particular Jewish laws, weren't something that you needed to do anymore in order to be right with God. It was this guy, Jesus, instead. And so their hope had been that by killing Jesus, that would stamp it out and it would be done once and for all. But in actual fact, it's just gotten worse. All that's happened is that these people are now saying that Jesus came back to life and all of these people, thousands and thousands and thousands of people, are joining them. And so they're trying to do everything that they can to stamp this thing out before it gets any worse. 
And so they start to arrest some of the key leaders in the church and they start to have some of the key leaders killed in association with the Romans who were in power. It's a good reminder to us that often the church actually flourishes the most when it is under persecution. We see this countless times throughout history, that often it's in those moments where there is massive persecution against the church that the church can flourish. And so it's one of the things that a lot of people, including us, are processing at the moment in this culture in which we live, where there can at times be hostility to us following Jesus. Sometimes it means that we get back to basics. We get back to the essence of what it means to really understand the radical truth of what Jesus has done for us and what it means for us to live lives the way that he's created us to live. And that can then have a massive impact, particularly as people who are persecuted continue to follow Jesus regardless. It often sends a very, very clear message. The passage that we're looking at today happens during a time called the Festival of Unleavened Bread, which is the same as uh, the time of Passover. And so Passover was this really rich and important time for Jewish people who came together primarily in Jerusalem to be able to think back to the Exodus, to think back to the time when God rescued them from slavery in Egypt. And so they would get together and they would celebrate that and symbolically do a whole bunch of different things to help them remember what God had done. But for this group of people who were gathering at this time, no doubt Passover had a very different meaning for them because we know that the events of Passover happen at the same time as what we celebrate Easter. Good Friday, Easter Sunday, we're all happening around the Passover festival. And so you can imagine that for the early church, there was this wrestling that was going on where they gather together to celebrate the Passover but instead of focusing on the way in which God rescued the Israelites from slavery all those centuries earlier, they gather together to be able to remember Jesus has come to set us free once and for all. And so they would have already been processing about what does this shift from Passover to what we now remember as Easter look like, particularly as you gather and break bread and drink the cup together as Jesus had instructed them to do. The king at this time was King Herod Agrippa. And we can get a little bit confused because we think Herod is a first name, but Herod was more of a title, kind of like Caesar in some ways. And so this is Herod Agrippa, who was the grandson of Herod the Great. And so if you remember when Jesus was born, there was a Herod who was around. He was called Herod the Great. And uh, then if you fast forward a little bit, there was another Herod who had John the Baptist killed and the Herod who was around, who kind of mocked Jesus a little bit around his trial. Uh, that was Herod Antipas. And he was the uncle of this guy, Herod Agrippa. And so this Herod, as some of the other Herods have tried to do, was trying to please the Jewish leaders. They're a very significant part of the community. And so he's trying to earn favour with them. And so he has James, one of the other key leaders of the early church and one of the closest friends of Jesus as well. Uh, we often hear Jesus spending time with Peter, James and John. This is the James who Herod has arrested and killed just before Passover starts. And then because the Jewish leaders are pretty thrilled that this has happened, he then has Peter arrested as well. And the plan is that he's going to kill him after the Passover is over. And so that's where we pick up this narrative. Peter trying to help the early church to be able to grow and thrive. And his first interruption is that he is sent to jail. We find Peter's life interrupted in a pretty significant way. 
He's chained up in jail with four lots of four guards guarding him. And I'm sure a part of the reason for that is because he's already escaped from prison once. You can read about that in Acts chapter 5, but uh, I'm sure they were like, okay, you're not getting out this time, so we're going to chain you up and we're going to have lots and lots of guards around so that you can't get out. So I want you to imagine how Peter is probably feeling in this moment, chained up in jail, guards all around him. How do you think Peter would have been feeling. He's just seen James, one of his closest friends, executed. And he knows that the death warrant has been signed for him and in just a few days, potentially the next day, he is going to die himself. If I was him, I would have been feeling very, very afraid. And I would have been feeling very, very confused. God, what are you up to in all of this? Like things are going so well. There's all these people who are discovering Jesus. Why on earth am I here in jail? when there's all of these opportunities around us? Why would you allow me to die when there's so much more to do? So how do we find Peter on this night before he's potentially about to be executed? Well, in Acts 12, verse 6, it says, The night before Herod was going to bring him out to the people, Peter was sleeping between two guards. He was tied with two chains and there were, two, there were guards on duty at the prison gate. Suddenly an angel of the Lord stood there and a light shone in the cell. The angel shook Peter by the shoulder, woke him up and said, Hurry, get up. And at once the chains fell off of Peter's hands. So Peter is about to be executed the next day and what's he doing? He's sleeping. And not just kind of half sleeping, he is sound asleep. We're told that the angel comes in and needs to shake him by the shoulder. Other translations talk about him being struck on the side or being tapped in all sorts of different ways. But the implication very clearly is that Peter is so asleep that the angel has to kind of come in and say, Peter, wake up, come on, we've got things that we need to do. It's amazing to think about this confidence that Peter has got in God. Whatever is supposed to happen is going to happen. If I'm supposed to die tomorrow, then I trust God that your plans are right. If I'm supposed to be set free somehow, then I trust that that's going to happen. So I might as well get some sleep because tomorrow there's stuff to do. That's an amazing way of being able to live your life in full confidence, even in the midst of this first interruption. And so there's Peter, sound asleep, having a nice little sleep there, and his second interruption happens. This angel so rudely comes and wakes him up and interrupts his sleep. The chains fall off of his arms, and the angel tells him to put on his belt and his sandals and then put his cloak on. And this is intentionally kind of humorous. Uh, when I read this, I was kind of thinking about when you go get up really, really early in the morning because, say, you're going away on holidays, and uh, if you have little kids... You know what this is like. You kind of wake them up and they're really sleepy. I want to get up. And then you wake them up and you say, okay, put your shoes on, put your jumper on, put your jacket on. We've got to get in the car. We've got to get going. That's pretty clearly what the angel is kind of doing to Peter here. He's like, come on, wake up. He's like, no, just a few more minutes. And then he says, no, come on, Peter, put your belt on. Put your sandals on, do them up. Come on, put your cloak on, it's time for us to go. That's very clearly the tone and the implication that's in this passage. And so Peter does all of these things and he follows, but he thinks that this all must just be a dream or he's just having a vision. He's seeing something that's maybe a prediction about something that might happen later. 
So he gets up and he does all these things and they get past the first guard station and nobody says anything. He gets past the second guard station and nobody says anything again. And they get to the iron gate that separates the jail from the street and the gate opens and they walk out on the street and then all of a sudden the angel just disappears. And there's Peter standing in the middle of the street, no doubt looking around saying, oh, this wasn't a dream, this wasn't actually a vision. This is real. I'm out of prison. Okay, here I am. So he thinks, what am I going to do now? He thinks, I know I'll go to one of the places where I know that the church is gathered. In the early church, because they didn't have buildings like we do, they gathered in homes to be able to pray together and journey together and eat together and celebrate together. And so he thinks to himself, I know there's this place just over the road, my friend John Mark, his mum's place, Mary. So we'll go over there and uh, hopefully they'll let me in. And so now we shift the scene over to this group of people who are gathered together in Mary's house praying. And I want you to imagine what this scene must have been like. You know that Peter, one of the key leaders of the early church, is in jail. You know that James, one of the other key leaders, has just been killed. And that's probably what's going to happen with Peter the next day. And so imagine us. Imagine if we had all gathered together because one of our key leaders was in prison and about to be killed tomorrow. We would be praying passionately, God, we want you to do something. Intervene in some way. Set them free. Let them get out. Somehow change the way that this is all going to play out. We can't imagine what it's going to be like if this key person is not around anymore. And so different translations talk about them praying without ceasing, fervently praying, persistently praying. So they're huddled together, praying that God would do something. So Peter comes up to the house and he knocks on the door that would have been outside. They would have had a house and it would have had kind of like a front yard that we're used to, which would have then had a wall around it and a door or a gate that was in front of it. And that would have been very firmly locked because, again, they're gathering, praying, and they know there's all this persecution happening all around the city. So that gate would have been very firmly locked. And so Peter comes and he knocks on this door, hoping that they'll end up letting him in. A servant whose name is Rhoda comes to the door. She would have been designated to say, if anyone comes, you will keep praying, but you go and just check what's going on out there. And so she comes to the door and Peter says, it's me. Will you let me in? She can't believe it. It's Peter. She knows his voice. She spent time with him. And so she's so excited that what does she do? She opens the gate and lets Peter in. No, she doesn't. She runs back inside, leaving Peter standing at the gate. And she says to everyone, she interrupts the prayer meeting, she says, everyone, everyone, it's so great, amazing news. Peter has been set free. He's standing outside at the gate. It's a miracle. It's really, really incredible. And so what do all the people we've gathered to pray about Peter being released from jail say? Do they say, yes, isn't God so amazing? Isn't God incredible? We can't believe this miracle has happened. Quick, let's go and let him in. No. They say, Rhoda, you're out of your mind. You're crazy. Peter's in jail. 
That's why we're here praying. Remember, he's in jail. He's got chains, all these guards around him. There's no way. And that's why we're having this prayer meeting so that we can look after Peter because he's in jail. He can't possibly be standing at the gate. And so instead, they come up with these other theories. One theory is that it must be Peter's guardian angel because a lot of people at that time believed that everyone had a guardian angel. And so this must be Peter's guardian angel who's come to tell us something about Peter. Another theory is that it's Peter's ghost because maybe Peter's already died. They've already killed Peter. And so this must be his ghost who's come to tell us that Peter is already dead. And I love the reality of this story. These people are gathered together, praying that God would do something, intervene and release Peter from prison. And instead of believing that maybe God's been able to do that, their theory is it must be a guardian angel or it must be a ghost, because that's far more likely than Peter actually being released from prison. Meanwhile, Peter's still standing outside at the door probably no doubt getting increasingly frustrated because he's like, I would really like to get out of the street because I'm pretty sure at some point they're gonna work out that I've escaped from prison and they're gonna come looking for me. So, hello, is there anyone in there? Can you please come and let me in? Eventually some people realize actually maybe it is Peter and so they come to the door, they open it up and sure enough, there's Peter standing there in the flesh and they're all completely blown away. This is absolutely amazing. And so Peter tells him to quiet down and explains everything that's happened. The next morning, of course, there is mass confusion because they wake up and they look for Peter and he's not there. And so they start asking each other and then Herod finds out about this and he starts asking around. And he finds out that Peter's escaped. And so the guards who are supposed to be looking after Peter are killed which is a really, really great reminder to us that this is not just kind of a rumour or someone forgot to lock the gate and so, whoops, Peter got out. (laughs) People's lives were at stake in this. This was massively important and it wouldn't have just happened by accident. So this is an amazing story for us. There's so much for us to be able to unpack in it. Part of what's really important about it is that it is one of the great reminders that we have throughout Scripture about how silly it is that people have this theory that a lot of the Bible was written to intentionally get a point across. That particularly Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, the four biographies about Jesus and then Acts, the story of the early church, were all kind of made up to be able to convince people that Jesus was the Son of God and that Jesus had done all this stuff. But it's intentionally kind of twisted in a whole bunch of different ways. There's all of these different stories that happen, like this one, that show us that if you were going to intentionally write a story that was going to try and convince some people of something, you wouldn't leave in some details like, here's a group of people praying for something to happen. It happens, and they don't believe that it happens. (laughs) It's the proof that these are genuine eyewitness accounts that help us to have confidence in Scripture. But there's a lot that we can learn from it. The first thing is what we've been talking about all the way through this series. It's another great example about how we can deal with interruptions that come into our lives. Again, for Peter, he's in this place where he's got all of this stuff to do. This massive interruption comes where he gets thrown in jail and his life is at stake. But how does he respond to that? He's sound asleep. His confidence and his trust in God is so high 
that he can sleep soundly in the midst of this massive interruption that's come his way. And so returning back to the question that we asked last week, how much do I trust Jesus even in the interruptions of my life? We could ask the question, how well do I sleep soundly when interruptions come my way? I know that I'm very challenged about that, that when things seem to not go the way that I expect them to go, sleep is often one of the first things that goes out the window. But how much do I trust Jesus, even in the midst of interruptions, to say, God's got this under control? Even if I can't see the way forward, somehow God is at work, and so I can trust him in the midst of that. But we can also learn a really important lesson about our expectations around prayer from what we've read today. You can ask the question this way, what do we expect when we pray together? We've talked before about the reality that God always answers our prayers. 100% of the time, God gives us an answer. Sometimes it's yes, sometimes it's no, and we don't want to hear it, so we miss that there was an answer, and sometimes it's wait or not yet. But God always gives us an answer to every prayer that we have. The challenge for us is that often the answers that God gives us to our prayers are not the answers that we're expecting, and so we miss them. The answers are standing right there, knocking at the door, literally right there in front of us. But because they're not what we expect, we completely miss the answer that God is giving us. A couple of examples of that. Sometimes when we're praying for healing, obviously when someone's not well, something's wrong with them, we want healing to happen in their lives. We're desperate for that. We believe that we're best when we're physically well. But because we so often want the answer to our prayer to be healing for that person or healing for ourselves, we can often miss some of the other answers that God gives us during the times when we're struggling, especially with health. An opportunity for us to slow down and to reevaluate some of the priorities that we have in our lives. Sometimes when things aren't quite going the way that we expect, we stop and we think, actually, what's most important? And that can be a huge answer to prayer for us. It can be an opportunity for us to say, it's okay for me to depend on other people. Sometimes when we're sick, it's the only time that we're willing to reach out, or not even reach out, but just allow someone else to do something for us. And if we're praying for someone else's healing, sometimes it can be a great opportunity for us to be able to say, I can come alongside and support someone who's going through a difficult time. Another example is when we're waiting for something. That could be when we're waiting for an answer about a job opportunity or an answer about a relationship challenge that we're facing or waiting to find out an answer about a house, the big things that happen in our lives. Sometimes we can be so focused on what the answer is to that question and our expectations about what that answer is going to look like that we miss what God's doing right now, what God's doing today in the midst of my circumstances, in this place where I'm still working, or in this neighbourhood where I'm still living, or in this relationship situation that I find myself in. Another example is when we think about the difficult situations that we hear about, whether those are global issues or whether those are things that are happening around us and people that we know are struggling in different ways. Sometimes we can be praying really passionately, God, I wish you would do something about this. Or I wish someone would do something about this. Sometimes God's challenging us 
to say, maybe you're a part of the answer to this prayer. Maybe there's an opportunity for you to get involved in this in one way or another. So as we head into this week, the question that I'd love us to reflect on is this. Am I willing to let God interrupt my prayers? Am I willing to let God interrupt my prayers? As I think about the things that are on my heart right now, the things that I'm praying about regularly, am I willing to let God interrupt what my expectations are about the answers to those prayers? In reality, it's partly about, am I willing to stop long enough to hear that there might be another answer to the prayer that I haven't thought of yet? I don't know about you, but sometimes for me, when I get up in the morning, lots of things going on, lots of things coming up, and so I'll spend some time praying, but it is about praying, oh, I've got to pray for that person, pray for that situation, get that done so that I can then have breakfast and get this done and then get out the door. There's an opportunity, actually, to stop long enough to hear what God might be saying as an answer to those prayers or to even allow God to interrupt my prayers? Am I open to the answers being different to what my expectations might be? But even bigger than that, am I willing to recognise that prayer at its core is actually not about the answers anyway? It's about me having a deeper relationship with God. That maybe what God's trying to interrupt me in is to say, just put your to-do list down for a minute. Let go of all those things just for a little while because I just want to give you more of me. I just want a deeper relationship with you. I want a deeper sense of connection with you. And so slow down enough to see that the interruption may be, hey, I'm right here. I'd actually like to spend some time with you so that we can go deeper together. Whatever it might be, am I willing to let God interrupt me as I head into this week? I'm going to pray that we would allow ourselves to be open to whatever it is that God might be doing because sometimes it is in those moments where we feel like things are the darkest, when things are falling apart the most, that God does the most amazing things. Let's pray. God, we thank you for another amazing example today that we get from Scripture about the ways in which you work in situations that are less than ideal. So often we fall into the trap of thinking that if our lives could just get put together enough, then we'd get to a place where you can do more in our lives. But time and time again through Scripture, we see that it's in those interruptions, it's in those moments when things go sideways, that so often you work in the most amazing of ways. And so we take courage from that, that particularly for those of us this morning who are facing challenges in our lives, that we believe you are at work, that you haven't forgotten about us. This isn't an interruption that's just an inconvenience. You're at work somewhere in the midst of all of that. And so I pray that as we head into this week, that you would allow us to let you interrupt our prayers, that as we cry out to you, as we pour our hearts out to you, as we tell you about the things that are going on in our lives and the people that we care about, that we'd stop long enough to allow you to say, maybe there's something else going on here. Maybe the answer to what you're craving is knocking right there at the door. You just need to let it in and see it from a different perspective. Thank you that you are the God of the universe, that nothing is outside of your realm of understanding. Nothing is outside of your realm of influence. We pray that as we go into this week, that we'd be able to see the places where you're at work 
and then be able to see you in those places. In your name we pray. Amen.